new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram, and uh, I'm not a bit far away, but we're still together in spirit with Joshua Black. This is the Grief Dreams podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Sean. Thanks. This is great. Yeah, it's weird not having you like right beside me. Um, but, but yeah, we're going to do this. And I'm guessing as we move forward, this might be the thing that we're going to be doing more often. So I'm happy. I'm happy to be here. Happy to record another podcast. I'm happy to actually announce too that uh, PhD is coming, coming to the end. I just finished. I got approved. And so now I'm just waiting for a defense date. So uh, yeah, for those who don't know, I'm doing uh, Grief Dreams research at Brock University. And so just really exciting for this chapter to close and uh, to see where else the world takes me from after this. Exciting stuff. And, uh, you know, for all who are listening right now, if this is the Grief Dreams podcast, a podcast that focuses on grief, loss and dreams and dreams, obviously people have uh, from any grief that they experience, dreams of loved ones who have passed includes animals uh, because people have dreams of animals that they've loved and animals that they've had in their lives affect them and they have dreams of that's why this uh, we get to speak to an individual who has done a lots of work lots of extensive advocate work on animals so let's get into it name is mark Laren young and he is a playwright screenwriter journalist satirist director and author his latest book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, is a national bestseller. Popular podcast, Scanna, and wrote and directed the award-winning documentary, The Hundred-Year-Old Whale. Described by the National Post as Canada's go-to guy for dolphins, whales, and trees, Mark has been dubbed Canada's greenest writer. Come to the podcast. Thanks for having me, and congrats on the PhD. That sounds awesome. It does sound awesome. I wouldn't recommend it, but <laughs> it's a long, tedious journey. But uh, yeah, here we are. And so I'm just happy to be a part, be able to be even doing this research on this topic. And more importantly, be able to talk to like people like you and people from all around the world on this topic. So I just think it's I'm, I'm really blessed and grateful to, to be here. It's a pretty amazing idea for a podcast. I'm really intrigued. So thanks for having me on. I'm so happy that you've uh, agreed to come on and, and talk about killer whales. You know, there's so much actually we can talk about when it comes to your life because you're, I think, everything but a PhD student. <laughs> you have a pretty long list of stuff. <laughs> um, and so there's so many things about like questions I have about that. But I think since like, the podcast around an hour, I think we'll focus on like the killer whale and how you got into that stuff first. It's sad to say, but I only really got into and understood, I think, kill whales a little bit because of the news this past summer with the uh, orca mother carrying her dead calf for 17 days. And I was like glued to this story and I was sharing it on social media and I was saying like, man, like these animals are grieving, you know, like, like that means like it means a lot to me because I think we forget that these other animals out there, when you know, their loved ones die, they're also you know, having these emotions. And so for you to come on to explain more about like their grief and also raise awareness on you know, how they live and what they need from us, I think this is going to be a great episode. Cool. All right. So what did you think when you saw that in the news? And like, because I'm guessing it spread like wildfire throughout the world. What was your, what was your understanding of that and maybe why it, it captured people's attention? Well, I mean, it was an amazing story. So this, you know, for anybody who somehow missed it, uh, this orca, Tahlequah, also known as J35 from the Southern Resident Orcas, lost her child, lost her daughter after about half an hour. This was, this was a very significant birth and death because this was the first live birth to this population in three years and this baby lived for less than an hour and researchers believe that Tahlequah had lost a couple of other 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 calves who did not you know who either didn't live long past birth or did not live long enough for us to see them and what happened you know to quote a million upworthy headlines what happened next after this orchid baby died was amazing Tahlequah lifted the corpse of her dead daughter to the surface and carried her, which we know that cetaceans do. Dolphins do this, orcas do this, and displayed the body. And 
it's not uncommon for these orcas to do this. And we know, we know, we know that it happens and it will frequently happen for a few days. There are various theories on why, including showing the pod what happened, showing the rest of the family what happened, and that this is basically ceremonial. And so Talakwa from J-Pod would be letting all the other orcas know that she'd lost her child. I phoned Ken Balcom from the Center for Whale Research on day three to ask him about this. And at the time, he said that the whale researcher in New Zealand, the lead person in New Zealand, uh, Ingrid Visser, had sent him a photo of an orca who had carried her calf for five days. On day three, when I was speaking with Ken, five days seemed unimaginable. And Talakwa carried the baby for 17 days. It was astonishing and heartbreaking and media from around the world tuned in. And the story seemed to be, you know, it was a mix of this orca is grieving and can orcas grieve? And which I found a little off. I think my favorite headline on this was Time Magazine wrote a piece that they headlined, Orca appears to be grieving. And I thought, I've been to human funerals and I've seen people who appeared to be grieving, who I knew were very happy the person was in the box. That orca was grieving. And so the idea that we were going, the orca appears to be grieving, but we will accept at face value that humans who we know lie, do we know have pretense? No, no, no. If somebody's crying at a funeral, they're absolutely grieving. But this orca has carried her child for 17 days. We're still not sure. Really? What's the, uh, what's the fear of that? of saying that the whale was grieving. I think humans are re I, I think I think a lot of humans get very nervous about the idea that orcas and other animals just might be pretty much operating on the same level we are. Because if we admit that, then we have to treat them with a whole lot more respect than we want to. So I think that, I actually think it's a political motivation if you really get down to it. If an orca can grieve and an orca can love, then why doesn't an orca have rights? Well, I think that, yeah, you're onto something there. If we push it away, we can still do what we've been doing. Like we don't have to change. But if you now oh, change yeah. your perspective, right, then all of a sudden you're gonna have to change your ways. Yeah, I just had a great conversation with uh, Peter Balaban, who wrote the, the Hidden Life of Trees, and I think it was The Secret Life of Animals. And we got into this, you know, in some depth. And it really comes down to the idea of humans like to be the top of the food chain. We'd, we'd like to claim that we are more intelligent and we are more empathetic. And what has been fascinating for me is I've come at orcas with no science background, really. Uh, my science background consists of getting a conditional pass in Camp 11 in high school and being told that the condition was that I never darken the doors of the science classroom ever again, it, which is kind of hilarious. I, I almost cost the world in a major way because my lab partner in Camp 11 is now one of the world's top AIDS researchers. And I really damaged my my buddy Bob's grades in that class. So it horrifies me to think that I could have brought him down with me and who knows what would have happened. Um, but that's my science background. My science background is basically being kicked at a science class. So when I started working on, on orcas, I would ask, I said, well, what is the difference? You know, I, I wanted to know the scientific reason humans were considered more evolved or, you know, or higher up the food chain than orcas. And it was fascinating because what I discovered when I started digging into this was that every time humans set a bar and animals reached it, we suddenly declared not that the animal was sentient or was, was intelligent or had a soul or whatever you want to say, 
but we suddenly declared that the bar was wrong. So man is the only animal that uses tools. Well, not so much. Crows use tools, monkeys use tools, orcas use tools. Okay, I guess it's not tools. Oh, humans are the only species that can recognize themselves in the mirror. Nope. You know, apes passed the mirror recognition test and now cetaceans have passed the mirror recognition test. Okay, so maybe the mirror recognition test doesn't mean that much. Oh, well, humans have the biggest brain. No, we don't. Orcas have bigger brains, sperm whales have a bigger brain. Okay, we'll change that. We have the most we have the most complicated brain. We have the most cortical folds, which is, you know, the the most basically for lack of a better word, the most complex brain structure. Not even freaking close. You you look at an orca's brain and they've got a whole lobe that we don't have that we think is for handling echolocation, but also seems to deal with empathy. You dig deeper in the sciences, only humans have this neuron that, com that processes complex emotions. Nope, they got that too. So it's been fascinating digging into this because I came at this from a totally naive perspective. And I assumed somebody would tell me this is why we're more evolved. And what I, what I keep finding is we set a standard, some other animal goes beyond it. And instead of going, oh, wow, this is really interesting. We say, I guess the standard was wrong. So basically we, we moved the goalposts. Uh, as far as I can tell, orcas pass every test we have set to prove what humanity is. It does not require opposable thumbs. Wow, that's that's just incredible. It seems like we've stuck, like from what I'm gather from what you're saying is we've created this narrative that we've carried with most of our human civilization of being better, or, or sorry, not better, but like superior, being like stewards, if you will, of animals above animals. Yes. Yet the evidence is becoming overwhelmingly the opposite where overwhelmingly where you know we have to shatter like you you know kind of shatter those I ideas and be frustrating well, it, there's this great concept that i've come across there's a, a animal researcher mostly a um, primate researcher franz deval who wrote a book called are we smart enough to know how smart animals are and he coined this fantastic term anthropo denial and Scientists like to throw around the idea that we are anthropomorphizing and that this is wrong when we say that an animal has the same emotions as us. How can we possibly know what an animal, how can we possibly know what an animal is thinking? And I feel like using one of those words I'm not allowed to use in your podcast to say, I don't know what my neighbor is thinking. You, you two don't know what each other is thinking. And yet yes. we don't consider an imposition to assume we know what more or less what other human beings are thinking. But somehow it's a bridge too far to go, this orca is grieving, this orca who is clearly in pain and is doing what appears to be ceremony with her pod. She, oh, well, we don't know that she's grieving. We don't know. Really? I don't think you want to know. And it's interesting because I thought anthropodenial, which is, the den which is denying the animals, experience emotions or the world the way we do was the opposite of anthropomorphism but i'm starting to think that the opposite is dehumanizing and that it's a whole lot easier to refer to this orca talaqua as j35 by her scientific name because that mm. moves her away it makes her other it makes her you know it makes it a little easier to dismiss when she's a specimen when when she's no longer when she's no longer a being with a name, but a specimen. So, and, and one of the things that I've been digging into, I'm working on a new, uh, on a new kid's book. And it's been fun trying to break down all this stuff I've been learning for kids. And the book's called Orcas Everywhere. And I'm looking at orcas around the world. And there's one consistent that you run into with the relationship with orcas and the relationship with other animals is Aboriginal people from around the world don't look at orcas or most animals as other. They look at them as siblings. They look at them as family. Maybe they look at them as gods, but they don't look at them as beneath. 
So the whole idea of dominion over is, you know, tends to come from Judeo-Christian stuff where we go, yeah, mm-hmm. we have dominion over. Mm, don't think so. No, not so much. You know, and, and Mark, that's a that's a fabulous point. It really is because I think a lot to this have some a little, a little experience with that. And I'm talking about the pets we all have. You know, when I got my dog, I, yeah. knew, I, I knew I'd touch upon my dog. <laughs> but when I got my dog, I didn't teach him all these things. I didn't teach him how to have emotions. I didn't teach all that. That came prepackaged. You know, I got him from a puppy. And there's things that innately, things they already know what to do. It's in them. They, they're thinking. You know, one thing, there's so many falsehoods and false statements about animals. And when I was doing research before I got my dog, so many things that I had to kind of take, leave, and really learn as I just got them through observation. Because one thing they said was, well, you know, dogs only have short memories, maybe two minutes, things, blah, blah, blah. They don't really remember. Are you kidding me? Like my dog has such a strong memory which most animals i've seen have have these memories have these attachments and i think that's a great tool that we have to be able to sit with our animals but now we got to get beyond this steward this fact that we are you know taking care of them and we're they relying on us so much and in a way that they are we built that but at the same time they're fascinating and I know you have cats. <laughs> so Oh yeah, my life has been ruled by a series of cats for yeah. many, many years now. Right. So you see it. You see in them every day. You know, there's there's a thinking, beautiful like brain in there. There's a soul in there. There's everything. Oh, absolutely. And the personalities are very distinct. You know, uh, from cat to cat. Uh, I've I've never had two cats. I've never, like I said, I really feel like they own me. But, uh, <laughs> you know, since, since it is apparently my job on earth is to serve these cats who move into my home. Uh, and weirdly, in, in pretty much every case, the cats have moved into my home as opposed to the other way around. <laughs> uh, haven't gone out to find them. They've found me and went, oh, it's you. What took you so long? And each personality has been completely distinct and they know how to get across what they want. Uh, my partner, Rain and I, when, when we were uh, living on Maui, we had a cat who we were clearly staying in her house and she trained us both. And I do mean trained us both that mm-hmm. she wanted water dripping down from the bathtub. That was how the water was to be served. <laughs> and we had to figure out how to do this and she showed us she was like she nudged she walked us in and she trained us to make sure there was you know running water that's wild and i i and i think you know like talking about all this and for me like going back to sort of uh, the whales and and how they mourn i think that's you know it for me it takes it to this like next level to give us even understanding of why humans do what they do with funerals and stuff because it probably is something very helpful about showing, right? Showing it to the rest of the pod. And so I'm curious uh, for you, do they do that with like older adult whales that die too? Or is it just for the young ones? They do that process. In terms of the lifting, I think that's only the young ones, but they've, I mean, they will rescue uh, injured or dying whales. The story that hooked me on this, you know, the, the story that got me into this was, the story of Moby Doll, who was the first ever orca in captivity. And when the whale who became known as Moby was harpooned and knocked unconscious, the two men who were leading the expedition to actually kill this whale were shocked when these two other whales raced to the injured whale. And what they'd always been told was that whales were bloodthirsty monsters. Basically like the image we have of sharks, that if there's blood in the water, there will be a feeding frenzy. So what the whales were supposed to do, according to all the experts, was rip this small injured whale to shreds. What they actually did was lift this whale to the surface. And one of the 
recurring amazing things I keep finding out as I dig into stories about orcas around the world are stories of compassion and, you know, just to screw, screw people up, what we like to call humanity. So there's a whale in Northern BC named Tumbo. Tumbo has scoliosis, does not swim very well, probably could not survive without the other orcas basically making sure that Tumbo's getting fed. So the other orcas stick with this one, make sure that Tumbo's never lost from the pod and make sure Tumbo's fed. There's an orca in Norway named Stumpy because the we seem to love coming up with charming names for whales that have injuries. So Stumpy has a couple of fins that have been damaged, uh, apparently in boat accidents. And one of the more amazing things about orcas, and there are plenty of amazing things, is that each pod has their own unique dialect or language, depending on which scientist you speak to and how nervous they get about attributing language to orcas. So each individual pod has their own dialect. They're very distinct clans or cultures. And at least five different pods have kept Stumpy, this injured orca who does not swim very well or very quickly, fed. So it's an astonishing thing because it's not just this whale's pod, and I'm, I'm only using this whale because I can't remember Stumpy's gender. So it's not just one pod, it's not just Stumpy's family keeping feeding, it is up to as many as five pods, maybe more. So all of the orcas in Norway seem to be looking out for this one injured whale. It's astonishing. And I don't know, I'm almost reluctant to call it humanity because I don't think you could count on five different countries looking after an injured person from a different one. You know, but the orcas are doing that. Now, Mark, as, as this is your world, how do we change that? move forward from this and, and you know is it just a matter of just owning up and saying hey we we made we made mistakes absolutely i think part of it is just moving forward with the knowledge we know now i think one of the one of the absolutely astonishing things i've come across uh while i was working on orca stories is that orcas are one of the only species on earth that has a menopause that is a, where the females have a prolonged life beyond their reproductive years and when i was working on the the killer whale book the killer whale that changed the world i would wake up at five in the morning in and send these panicked emails to researchers because i just could not believe this i would i would send up these emails saying even apes because basically it, when I wrote the book, the only animals that we knew besides humans who live beyond the, where females live for prolonged life beyond their reproductive years are orcas and pilot whales. Now it appears that narwhals and belugas are also in this club. But I would send these emails to scientists around the world like, seriously, not even great apes? And then I'd get an email back saying, no, Mark, not even great apes. And then, you know, I'd, I'd wake up again and go, even elephants? No, not even elephants. So, and the theory behind this prolonged life beyond menopause is, is called the grandmother hypothesis. And the theory is that we need the older orcas, the older, mem the older belugas, the older narwhals, the older pilot whales, because in these societies, in these cultures, and I'm not using those words loosely, Wisdom is more important than reproductive ability. And that's a fascinating can of worms in terms of evolution and what you think of this particular species and where things rank on whatever food chain ranking you want to put on. You know, whatever ranking you want to put on of, you know, beings on Earth, that's a pretty amazing thing that basically we are in that same club with these four other cetacean species or these four cetacean species can i can i is it the is the amazing part of that the fact that 
we kind of look at animals like they've evolved to only include things that they've most necessary. Fascinating is that they've kept this throughout that evolution. So must be that important. Yeah. Basically that they've evolved to, you know, the fact that this, this is the evolutionary theory behind it is the grandmother hypothesis is that they've evolved to need grandmothers. They've evolved to need someone to pass on wisdom. Okay. If they've evolved to, to need someone to pass on wisdom, then whether you want to say they've got a language or not, somehow those grandmothers are passing on wisdom. Wow. Now, one of the studies that's just come out in the last year is that orcas are the only species on earth besides humans that have evolved culturally, that have evolved through culture and habits, as opposed to simply geographically, you know, as opposed to simply adapting to environment, that they've evolved to do their own things. It's, it's really quite amazing. And the cultures from orca to orca, and we now know there's, there are possibly 10 or more different ecotypes or subspecies or species, depending on how you want to categorize them, around the world are completely unique. They hunt different animals. They live different ways. They have different habits. They greet each other in different ways. They play in different ways. If you're prepared to say they play, and I am. So. Wow, it's so interesting. Such a, like, to think about that. And, and even thinking about humans, you know, like now it's almost like we've got rid of our grandparents and went to the phone, you know, like, <laughs> like I can see us going back now, like we're, you know, maybe we won't need to reach menopause because we don't really, we're not helping, we're not taking knowledge in from our grandparents like we used to. Um, but now we get everything on the internet for the most part, right? So yeah, yep. it's, it's, it's nice to actually see how it was meant to be, <laughs> you know, like for the, like, you know, like you're supposed to learn from your grandparents, they're supposed to teach you. Um, but like, it really, I think for me, it looks like, oh, wow, like that's not where we are anymore. You know, it's kind of sad that, you know, humans aren't there anymore. It, it is. And it's kind of fascinating to see how orcas have it wired. Uh, I, out of the book, I ended up doing a movie called The Hundred-Year-Old Whale, where, you know, we looked at Granny, who was the matriarch of the Southern Residents for many years. And, you know, she died in 2016. And I'll talk to people who know these whales who spent their lives watching them. And they really feel that part of what's happened and part of what you're seeing in terms of difficulties the orcas are going through is that they no longer have their matriarch. They've gone from having a whale who even the most skeptical people about her age still put her in her in her 80s uh, to a matriarch who's now in her 40s. So you just don't have that level of wisdom anymore. And a big part of that is we did have so many orcas taken out of this population through uh, the southern residents were the orcas that were hunted, I mean, hunted and captured and put into marine parks. So most of the early orcas that people saw around the world were Southern residents. So an entire generation was wiped out. And that's how you, that's part of why we're now looking at this very endangered species because the, there was a smaller gene pool. Uh, so many of the, basically an entire generation of young orcas was taken out and sold to SeaWorld, Bank of Aquarium, aquariums around the world. And, you know, now we're seeing the price for that as we're looking at this population diminishing again, both because that diminished gene pool, because that diminishment, they came back from that, but now we're dealing with, with issues around food supply, issues around toxins in the water, and, you know, all the myriad of environmental problems that we've got going on in the Sailor Sea right now. Well, you know, it's funny. I just, I watched the, well, it's not funny. I, I just, I watched your, <laughs> your documentary and it was moving. I learned a lot and about the captivity, I really felt for them. And, you know, it's, it's as if like you really pulled up my heartstrings. Um, it's as if like uh, the way they're, the young were taking away, were taken away from granny. 
is like if someone was abducted a child was abducted from you know someone like a human like it's the same thing and the emotions that they must go through because if they're going through emotions when they're dying they must be going through emotions when someone's being kidnapped or trapped right and just like it really you know you feel so sad about you know like just what they have to go through as a species um living with us you know it's like that crazy neighbor they have to <laughs> get along with <laughs> and he's like oh man i feel for them so much but you know for the listeners it's a great movie um it's only 15 minutes i you know it's i wish it was longer <laughs> yeah i was glued to the screen the whole time um was there a reason why it was 15 minutes so it's funny we've been trying to get the funding to finish a movie about moby doll and the past and future of the southern resident orcas for several years now since before i started the book and we we need to buy some archival footage and that's very expensive so there was a competition from bravo fact and we pitched i had actually said to my producer i found this other great orca story with and i could actually i think i actually heard his head explode he went we've still been trying to fund your crazy moby doll movie for years and so we decided we'd enter the granny idea in this competition and the maximum length we could do for the bravo competition was 15 minutes and we used every second of that and it killed me to keep it 15 minutes because i wanted to tell the whole story of these orcas and i'm sitting with pieces on the cutting room floor explaining about the toxins in their bodies but also again some of the amazing stuff we're getting into about orca culture how they interact and I mean, what's really astonishing, if you look at it, is so many of the whales that became famous around the world, you know, almost everybody's first exposure to an orca for decades was in a marine park. It was somewhere like marine land. And then suddenly you had really, I think, Free Willy was the turning point. It, it's fascinating seeing how pop culture is impacted. That's so true. Uh, animals. Yeah. And yeah. free, oh, wow. Like we, there was a, a woman in the movie, a woman in the movie who said, who's uh, an acoustics expert. And I asked her how she got into whales, free willy. And that's a constant. Mm. It's either, it's like you will constantly hear that free willy was the moment that people went and started going maybe this captivity stuff's wrong and that led to the movement to free keiko and really all of the various empty the tanks movements and the sanctuary movement all of them really date back to to free willy there there were opponents of captivity before but this all went you know really dating back to when moby doll was captured but this became the switch from being you know, a few voices in, you know, the human wilderness to mainstream when the fight was on to find a better life for Keiko, who was the whale who played Free Willy. And everything shifted after that. Then Blackfish happened and suddenly captivity became just toxic. So it's fascinating that really two movies have done a lot to change the fate of these orcas. Seems like, uh, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, I was going to say, you know, the reason I want to finish the, the Moby Doll movies, I'm hoping that'll be, you know, that'll get people focused back on the orcas that are in the wild. I want people looking at these orcas who we've still got and trying to save these populations before it's too late. Yeah, I was just going to say, Mark, this is fascinating. This is all, a, a, you know, a changing of narrative. You know, we've gone through a storyline. You know, we love storylines as humans. We love stories. You know, we love stories about ourselves and we love the world around us. And we carry that storyline with us for a long time, which is, you know, we're stewards of animals. We're a little bit superior. Animals are in need of our, us uh, as opposed to vice versa. And yet, and I was thinking about it. I was like, is Disney and movies harmful or is it actually, it's not bad. But there's an element of them being helpful because it actually, by putting animals by uh you know free willy all that it actually does a thing where it it, it that storyline it, it links us a little closer and i think that that's the of what's happened through disney through movies and if that's what we need as humans is stories to kind of get us pushed and motivated and going and, and and then then 
that scene, that's where I think, you know, the power of your 15 minutes, your little doc, but the fact that you're still aiming towards more, you know, pushing, you want to full really push this narrative out there. And, and that leads me to this next question of what do you want that narrative to be moving forward? Moving forward, I've really become fascinated by the idea of personhood, which is how we seem to be able to convey rights to other species. And if you look at, you know, if you look basically legal history, that is for a long time, personhood was basically limited to white dudes who own property. And as that, as that definition opened up, you know, we started to move into a real democracy as opposed to this make-believe democracy, which, you know, consists of, well, like I said, white guys who own property. And some of the most interesting fights around the world to change the world are trying to convey rights to rivers. There are three rivers that have now been declared persons. And that means they have legal standing and you can't just mess with them. Right now, an orca is technically an it. One of the biggest things for me with my book was the original title, uh, was the title I used for a radio documentary, The Killer Whale. That changed the world. And I was lucky enough to have an, to have an early reader of the book, Eric Hoyt, who's one of the world's experts on orcas. And he's written 20-something books on them, and Eric's amazing, and his books are amazing. And he read the book, and he said, you know, the only suggestion I've got, I think you should basically change that to who. I think you should challenge people to stop looking at orcas. Because I, I got into that in the book. I just didn't do it in the title. And calling my publisher when the book was already in the catalog and saying, it's not the killer whale that, it's the killer whale who. And I'm basically now doing everything I can to argue against this distancing, argue against looking at orcas and other animals as others. In my kids' book, I'm pretty careful to declare us animals as well. If we're gonna, I, I'm, I'm trying to get away from the othering because I think when we get away from that and you start looking at orcas as part of our family as part of our our shared earth that it's harder to mess with them you've started you've got to respect their habitat you've got to respect that they also have a right to the food supply and that resources aren't just ours they're not just for humans we've got to learn to share and again this is where i get into this concept of humanity uh the last known photo of granny she was she appeared to be starving and she was passing a salmon over to one of the juvenile orcas and no one who knows orcas was remotely surprised by this these orcas will share their food even excuse me these orcas will share their food even if they are starving again most of us won't do that so I think we need to acknowledge that. I think we need to acknowledge that this life on earth has value beyond just serving us. Wow. That's, that's so beautiful and so moving. Just that one act, like say granny was starving, but yet she fed her, her food to the young. That like, if someone did that, like that's human, I would be like, man, you're so amazing. I wish more people could be like you, you know? And so I wish more people could be like granny, actually, um, that are human. And I think that's just, it, it takes it on a different perspective. And I'm curious, since she died, like, how was that for you? Because you filmed her and you're so into the, um, her life. Did you grieve at all? Like, did any emotions come up when you heard she died? Oh, it was heartbreaking. And it was also, the timing was stunning. Because we just finished the movie. We just locked it down. And the way movies work is, you know, 
most of the, the fun stuff, you don't get very, very much time for the fun stuff of doing the interviews and the filming. So much of making a movie is post-production. So where you're editing and putting everything together and we had finally delivered to Bravo and they'd signed off on everything and it was all, it, it's called picture lock when everything is supposed to be set and nothing can be changed. And we got the word that she died and it was just shattering, especially when it appeared that she'd starved to death and not died of old age. You know, the idea of that was just heartbreaking. My partner, Rain, who was filming her, just went into a tailspin for quite a while after it because she saw Granny more than I did. And she and Granny kind of seemed to work out some relationship that was kind of awesome. So, but it was, yeah, it was heartbreaking. And Granny, you know, just to bring this back to Tahlequah, we started Granny was the matriarch of Tahlequah's pod. Uh, I'll frequently say it's always J-Pod. Moby was J-Pod. For some reason, this one particular pod that basically is, has been called the most resident of the Southern residencies of the Orcas that hang out in the Salish Sea, Washington and BC. And the the three different pods, there are three different pods, J-Pod, K-Pod, and L-Pod. And J-Pod is the one that travels the least. L-Pod has been seen, I think, as far south as California. They travel further north. J-Pod really sticks pretty much around Victoria, Washington. And as a result, they're the ones who are, who we're frequently seeing. So they're, they're the stories we're telling. And so Granny was the matriarch of Tahlequah's pod. And who knows how Tahlequah would have behaved if Granny had been there and whether there would have been any difference. You know, one of the, I mean, going into astonishing, you know, orca stories, when Talakul was grieving, there was a part of me that thought that she was telling the world to pay attention. A lot of orca people were saying variations on this, that she was bringing the spotlight there. And part of what she drew the spotlight to was this other young whale, Scarlet, and, you know, the, the real heartbreak of the last few years, Granny had a long, wonderful life. You know, this orca, Scarlet, uh, was just over three years old. And she got her name because she was covered with scars, because she was a breech birth delivery. So at least one other orca assisted her mother in the delivery and helped pull her out. I mean, wrap your head around that. This was an orca being a midwife and delivering a baby because, in, because apparently because of the toxic load, it is harder for these orca moms to, I'm not sure what the word is, expel seems a little too clinical, but it is harder for the orca moms to deliver their babies because of the toxic load they're carrying now. And we're seeing more orca moms die in childbirth. And what saved Scarlett's mom was the, the delivery with the help of, of another orca, possibly Granny. And this orca is the one who became world famous because she was in this astonishing shot. It, like she out free willy free willy. There's this stunning photo uh, by our friend Clint Rivers who of Scarlet, this baby whale, basically learning to fly. And if you've seen any orca photos online, if you spent any time on any social media a few years ago, you saw this stunning photo of this baby orca flying through the air in a stunning breach that is actually cooler looking than the one they created digitally for Free Willy. And this was the orca who was dying as Talakwa was displaying her daughter. So there was a rescue mission to save Scarlet. It was a little odd in some ways. I, I, I felt it was a little on the too little too late side in terms of a rescue mission, but I don't believe there would have been any attempt to save this whale had Talakwa basically not 
told the world, here we are, my baby's dead, this kid is dying. So it was really an astonishing thing to watch. And I mean, it, it's been a heartbreaking summer for Orca lovers out here. It really has. Wow. Like the, uh, you really, I think, push it to the limit there. You just like change just a little bit more in me where I'm just like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, but for her, for um, Telequa to like to mourn the way she did, it might not have even been for her. And that's what you're saying. Maybe it was for us. And that, that, you know, that blows my mind. It absolutely blows my mind. Well, these orcas have an astonishing ability to be in the right place at the right time and to avoid the wrong place. And this is consistent. Everything that I've looked at in, and, and I've now been looking at orca history in the Pacific Northwest since, well, since the 1960s, since we started studying orcas on Pacific Northwest. There's a bit of research before this, and, I've, and but mostly, but mostly everything started with the capture of Moby Doll in 64. And going back to that story, when a harpoon was set off, when a harpoon was set up off Saturna Island or on Saturn Island, uh, where the orcas generally swam right next to the shore pretty much every day of the summer for the previous few years, they didn't go near that harpoon until the day the harpoon was supposed to be gone. And Murray Newman, who was the director of the aquarium, told a reporter, I think they're psychic. I think they know we're here. A few years earlier, there was a machine gun set up on Campbell River, a machine gun set up in Campbell River. And the purpose of the machine gun was to shoot the orcas who were scaring the tourists and eating the salmon. And that was a government approved initiative. That was our Canadian government at work. We were going to take out these dangerous pests, was a, a name that we'd apply to any, basically any animal we couldn't eat or any animal like to eat something we ate. And the orcas, it was like they got word there was a machine gun in Campbell River. And they went, okay, I guess we'll skip Campbell River this year. There was a hunting expedition to take them out to capture an orca a few years before Moby Doll was caught. Again, these hunters waited months in an area that orcas never avoided. The, they were astonishing at avoiding the places where they were captured. They didn't go back to certain coves for decades once they were captured there. And, you know, I've talked to probably the two, two of the people in the world who spent the most time with orcas, period. Uh, Dr. Alexandra Morton and Kim Balcom. And Alexandra Morton right now is best known for her activism to raise awareness about what's going on with the fish farms on the West Coast. And before that, she spent a very long time hanging out with orcas and documenting their lives and trying to get a sense of their languages. And she told me a story about being on the water in the fog, in a small <laughs> boat, and thinking, oh my God, I'm going to die. I can't find my way home. And as she's worrying that she's going to basically have her boat crunched by a larger ship, a pod of orcas shows up and guides her safely home. And as astonishing and crazy as this is, it gets ast more astonishing and crazier because that was the first and only time a pod ever did that with her. To take it to an even crazier level, Ken Balcom, who runs the Center for Whale Research, told me an almost identical story about the day he was lost and an orca pod came out and led his boat safely out of the fog. And again, that's the first and only time a pod has ever done that. And you can talk to, if, when you start to talk to people who spent time with orcas, I've now learned to say, okay, and what's your fictionally implausible story? Because <laughs> everybody has one. They all have one. I have a few now, and it's mind-blowing to me. Mark, I would be amiss if I didn't ask one, one question that I, it's been on my head for the last 
a little bit that you've been speaking. Tell me about the music because do they make music? I like I'm so fascinated with sounds, with um, ways of communicating, especially with whales and and orcas. Do they have that? Do they do like how do that? How do they communicate? They communicate through a variety of sounds. Uh, so the splashes they'll make, that's a, a form of communications, the tail slaps and, and even the breaches. Uh, they also, they also make other sounds, which are called their dialect or their language. And each pods is completely distinct. And when I, when I learned that they had different dialects, my image was, okay, so like, English and Scottish and like a Newfoundland accent here and American accent here. And I was asking John Ford, who's the person who discovered dialects and came up with, and was the first person who believed this was even possible. And he said, no, no, it's more like English, Japanese, Swahili. Each pod wow. dialect is completely distinct. But the main way that orcas communicate is, um, is acoustically they echolocation so they've got this which this is where you start to wonder about who's the more evolved species or well, they share this sense right so basically it's it's biosonar they will send out signals and the more orcas there are the basically the bigger bandwidth the the more signals are going out So if they're hunting something, they'll each be sending out their distinct bio echolocation pings. And this will contribute to pretty much a collective image of what they're looking at. So, you know, they may actually be a more social society than we are because they share like that. So it's a fascinating way of communicating. Now, orcas do not seem to have songs the same way that some of the other whales do. Humpback songs are freaking amazing, where they will start a song, and that song seems to evolve over the course of the year, and then the next year they start a new song. Whoa. And blue whales seem to have songs. And I don't, again, you know, if you even if you want to shy away from the anthropomorphizing term or the concept, what else do you want to call them? They are musical. They hit musical notes. They've, when people started to record them and say, you know, this is whale music, it sounds like singing. It sounds like music. There are patterns. And if you study music at all, you can follow it. Even listening to J-pop for the first time. And I'm not that musical, but I'm, you know, I've recorded a couple of albums doing different things. And you can hear the musicality. You can hear the repeated rhythms. So I could identify a J-Pod call, and I am not a scientist or expert by any stretch of the imagination. And the first time John Ford played calls back to back, I could hear the musicality because you can hear the tone step. As he said, it's pitch and time. And seriously, anyone can listen to these you know, these calls and go, oh, that's a distinct call. That's a distinct call. And that's that pod. Spend any time at all and you'll be able to identify them. But yeah, if you want to get into songs, the humpbacks just have music wired. So it's, oh, I just, that it's super interesting. And I think the more um, information, the more research we get on that, because that's going to reveal a lot. Like there's a mystery and a magic behind the, that music, the underwater type of communication. And I think that that's going to be a beauty. Um, I read this study once. They they did a study on uh, prairie dogs, and they could they could they eventually figured out based off little clicks and you know how generally little prairie dogs or those type of animals talk. And they got it down to where they could figure out like the it was elaborate, like saying things like you know watch out for that man in the red hat who's walking in the left. Like that's intense so i'm excited to hear like what we can really understand because we're still not there yet with what these orcas are communicating these whales in general 
um fascinating stuff i asked that question because i'm just i love that information thank you oh hey my pleasure and one of our uh i know times time short and there's so many so much stuff that uh we want to talk about <laughs> but um uh, we'll go with the uh, dream so have you ever had a dream of granny since she passed no i haven't yeah haven't had any granny dreams and haven't had any teleco dreams i'm i don't tend or i probably have but i'm really bad at remembering my dreams <laughs> like i had a dream last night and i thought i should write this down and talk to the dream guys in the morning <laughs> and i forgot to write it down and it's gone oh. uh, so yeah i so i tend to have like vivid dreams and unless I wake myself up to write something down, they vanish. That's funny. That's funny. Uh, so if you could have a dream tonight and wake up and remember it <laughs> for a long period of time, what dream would you want to have of Granny? Or Telequa? Child? Oh, wow. I think I'd have to go for Granny. And... I just anything that would take me into her world, anything that would let me hear and hear and experience the world the way she did would be amazing. So I'm picturing you as a whale in that her would be wicked cool. Wouldn't that be mm. cool? Yeah. Absolutely. That would be an awesome dream. <laughs> I'm going to attach some nice underwater music to this. This is this is great. <laughs> Go for it. Hey, we can send you Moby Dolls calls if you want. We've we've got recording. Oh, calls. please, please do. That's wild. Nice. And and so since you're part of her pod, what would you want to ask her that maybe you don't really know? What else can we do to help? Hmm. That's cool. Pass on some of that wisdom. Yeah. Forgive Absolutely. us, please. You messed up. Yeah, that works. Forgive us works. Amazing. And is there a specific place you'd like to be? Like in the water and ocean? Okay. I would actually go to Saturna Island because not only is that the place they seem to hang out and the place Moby Doll was harpooned, it's the place where these orcas party. And when I was talking about impossible you know, what's my fictionally implausible moment or one of them? I was debuting my new kid's book. I was going to test drive a chapter of my new kid's book on East Point and on Stern Island. And I was invited out to speak in the park. And this was while Telical was grieving, while Scarlet was dying, and while I was just exhausted trying to devote all of my time to these whales while still trying to make the deadlines for all my work that pays the bills and wondering if it was doing any good. And just before I was supposed to speak, someone in the audience shouts, whale. And they're just off the cliffside, right where Moby Dolph was harpooned, where this ride started for really the world and for me. I'm watching J-Pod, Moby's family, playing, and they are just partying. And I've heard this from people who watch the whales. For some reason, East Point off Saturna Island is where the whales just get their groove on. And they were breaching again and again and again. I'd, seen, I'd never seen anything like it. And this was the night I was supposed to be premiering the kids' book. And this was the night when I was going, Wow, I'm about ready to drop from all the time I'm putting into Telequah and Scarlet. And it was hard not to look at that and go, okay, you win. You win. You own me this summer. I'm yours. So, yeah, I'd want to be there. I'd want to be out there partying and reaching with them. That's beautiful. And, you know, I just have this last thought in my head where. I think, you know, through this beautiful interview, just hearing you talk about Granny and, you know, her pod and different families, because it's just, it's like us. It's like humans, you know, they celebrate, they live their life. And it's naive of us to really sit here and think that, you know, we're isolated or we're, we're, we have a distance from animals because 
the fact is we spent most of human civilization with animals. We've been on this earth with them, a part of them. And uh, this has been a, a brief interview, but it's been a, an amazing one because you do an amazing job of, of uh, conveying to not only us, but our listeners of what it means to really respect and uh, look at these creatures as equal in terms of sentient beings that we share the earth with. And, and that's a blessing. You know, I'm left with even more respect than I had before. And I think that this is the this is the narrative we take with us that we move on with. And I'm, I'm really happy that you're doing the work that you do, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. All right, Mark. So where can people find your documentary, read your book, um, your kid's book? When's that going to be available? Can you uh, share some of your, your social media stuff and where they can find, this, find the, uh, the material? Sure. I've got my own website, larenyoung.com. I'm easy to find on the Google because you look up Laren Young and it's basically me. Um, <laughs> uh, at Laren Young on Twitter, I don't play there too much, but I'm easy to find on Facebook and I exist on Instagram and all those good places. The movie is on Vimeo. Please check out the movie. So the movie's on Vimeo. Podcast is scanner.org. Check it out on iTunes and Stitcher and all the other good places that podcasts are found and we've got amazing guests and it, it's just been such a gift to be able to interview people and keep telling stories about these whales wow and when's that child's uh, children's book coming out next fall orcas everywhere oh, watch no for way. it everywhere i guess yeah we gotta have you back on for that i can't wait to read oh, it oh please do <laughs> it's it was so much fun looking at like I said, orcas everywhere, looking beyond the West Coast and finding these stories about orcas doing amazing things around the world. It's It was fantastic. Will, will you be featuring the way they grieve? Like, would there be something in there about the way they grieve since that's what captured the world? That uh, is one of the reasons I had a little bit of trouble making Deadline because my editor said, okay, so where's the stuff about Telequan Scarlet? Well, I delivered the book two weeks before that. Uh, so, yes, I will. Uh, Amazing. I, I went back in and there's stuff on Talakwa, there's stuff on Scarlet, and my publishers have given me permission to add anything else amazing that happens before we get a press. Wow, that's beautiful. It's amazing. I know that, that that's what, if Talakwa wanted us, uh, and that's what captured the attention, then I think the kids will will also be able to use that information to see them differently than what, you know, mainstream media wants them to, to see. So I'm super excited for that book. And I think it's a great way you're doing it to educate them, hopefully before they're all extinct because they are endangered. So um, is there a place where people can support the movement also? Is there links on your website where people can, you know, I guess, help with? Uh... Yep. Uh, we try and make sure that every time we interview somebody for the podcast, we make sure that we link to their organization in the show notes. And hey, if you want to help me make podcasts, we're on Patreon. So if anybody wants to help us make more Scanna podcasts more often, patreon.com. Beautiful. Thank you for shouting that stuff out. And thank you for coming on. So this was a real pleasure. And I knew it was going to be good, but I didn't know it was going to be this good. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. To wrap up uh, with our stuff, you can check us out at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. And if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group um, and share your dreams or listen listen to other people's dreams that they share. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. Uh, we also have YouTube and Instagram TV. Um, and also recently I just released uh, Dreaming of Owl, which is a book that for children that talks about dreaming of the deceased. And so that's on Amazon. Check that out. And as we sort of like to say, with love and gratitude from us to you.
I have introduced myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.